I'm glad to be here with you today for our devotion. We're going to be looking again at the Old Testament lectionary text for this upcoming Sunday. Uh, this upcoming Sunday uh, is uh, the gospel passage is a parable probably familiar to many of you. It comes out of Matthew chapter 22, and it's basically uh, sort of summarized as the parable of the wedding feast in which uh, God is portrayed as the master or the host of ceremonies for his son's wedding. Uh, goes out, sends his servants out to go get all the people that had said they were going to come to the wedding to let them know it's now time to enjoy the feast together. And what do you know? The people that had said they were going to come don't show up because they're busy or they have something else that they think is better to do, or frankly, they just don't really want to be a part of it at all. And so what ends up happening and is sort of surprising in the parable is the master of the ceremony uh, sends his servants out to the highways and byways to get complete strangers, people that have no knowledge of the son, have no knowledge of him, and says, fill up my wedding hall with anybody that will come. Anybody will come. And that is sort of the big idea of the parable. It ends with noting that everybody who does come to that wedding is, of course, uh, has to be clothed by the king or by the master of ceremonies in order to get in. And of course, we know that that's a wonderful picture of the righteousness of Christ that his people need in order to attend the great marriage feast of the Lamb one day that's depicted for us in Revelation, and frankly, is prophesied for us here in our passage today, which is Isaiah chapter 25. Now, the passage for this Sunday is actually just Isaiah 25 verses 6 through 9, but I figured to give a little context to the passage, we begin at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, to start off, we see Isaiah picturing the city that is, and the city is really kind of picturing the world, the system of the world that has rebelled against its maker, rebelled against God, and what that has resulted in. And then it will picture for us the new, better, heavenly city that is to come, that frankly already is ours for those who are in Christ already do have possession of this city. And so that's the depiction of what we're doing here today in Isaiah 25. So it begins this way. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Notice the, the personal nature of this. You are my God. Isaiah is talking about the whole world and the whole new world to come. And yet Isaiah is makes it very personal. You are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. How much of a comfort is it to know that in the midst of the wreckage and chaos that uh, this world so often seems like it's spiraling down into, that the Lord of heaven and earth actually does have a plan formed of old, faithful and sure. And his plan is going to be discussed now for what will happen in what will happen to the city that is and what will result in the city to come. So he says, verse two, for you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. So here Isaiah pictures the end of the city that is now, of the world system that is now that one day God is going to destroy what seemed impenetrable to the world, a fortified city, a place that seemed to be undefeated, 
one day he is going to defeat it. He is going to defeat the system of this world, no matter how powerful it may seem, it will, it will never be rebuilt. It will be utterly destroyed. And indeed, we see throughout the book of Revelation, we hear the promises of Jesus that one day there will be uh, the destruction of the, quote, old order, so to speak, of the city that has been in constant rebellion against God, the city of man, so to speak, or to put it in the way Augustine did, contrasting the city of man and the city of God. Isaiah does a little bit of the same thing here, uh, especially if you go back to chapter 24 and into chapter 25. As a result of God being able to destroy this seemingly impenetrable foe, Isaiah says in verse 3, Therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. Notice the, the contrast here of what happens to God's people in the midst of, um, of this chaotic world. We're not promised in this life that things are going to be easy. We're not promised that we won't face heat, that we won't face struggle and temptation, that we won't sometimes be beaten down by it all but we are promised in the midst of it that he will be our stronghold, as verse four says. He's a stronghold to the poor. Indeed, to the poor in spirit he is. He's a stronghold to the needy in his distress. Indeed, we who are sinners are in very much need of his protection. He's a shelter from the storm. I love that picture of being able to find shelter even for the briefest of times in the midst of a giant thunderstorm. To be able to know that no matter how much the winds are assailing the outside of the shelter, no matter how much the rain is pouring down on us, that because God is our shelter, we can feel safe and we can feel secure, even in the midst of the most violence, violent storms. And then it says, he is our shade from the heat. I grew up in Southern California, uh, about 45 minutes outside of Los Angeles in a city named Rancho Cucamonga. Yes, that's real. It exists. I promise you, Rancho Cucamonga is the name of the city. And uh, it wasn't in the desert, but it wasn't far away from the desert. And so as a result, uh, sometimes you'd have 110, 115 even degree days. I mean, it could get really, really, really hot, but it was a dry heat. I used to think that that was sort of a, you know, a joke. I didn't know what that meant because I had never known any different. And then I moved out to the East Coast and I realized exactly what people meant by dry heat as opposed to a humid heat. Oh my, there is a gigantic difference. And one of the differences is if you're in humid heat, even if you get under a shade, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to cool down very much. It might help a little bit, but because of the moisture in the air, you're still going to feel kind of sweaty and hot and uncomfortable. But not so in California where I grew up. It could be a 100 degree day, and if you got under shade, it wouldn't take long to cool down. Indeed, that's the picture that Isaiah gives us of God's protection of us, that yes, the world might be bearing down on us with blistering heat, and yet it is he that is our shade from all of that blistering heat. And so that's the situation as it is before God 
judges the world, that yes, we're surrounded by heat, yes, we're surrounded by storm, but he's our shelter in the midst of it. Now he's going to turn in verse 6 to what will happen when the city to come is revealed. When the old is gone and the new has come. Verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Now, you will see throughout all of Isaiah, you will see him often refer to the mountain of the Lord. Sometimes it's called Mount Zion. And if you look into the New Testament, you go into the book of Hebrews, you're going to see that this mount is more than simply the temple mount in Jerusalem, but that this mountain is meant to project to us the true and better temple of the heavenly city of God. That one day, the mountain that... Uh, that God reigns on will be the mountain that we reign with him on, this heavenly mountain. And what's he going to do there? Well, God is going to turn into the head chef because it says here, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. The picture is very clear of what's going, what awaits us. Right now, it's shelter from the storm. Right now, it's heat with occasional, uh, with occasional cloud cover to, to get relief. But one day, it will be a feast. And I love the way that the feast is depicted. I mean, for one thing, it's a feast of rich food. And it's also a feast of well-aged wine. Now, if you're one of those people that is prone to thinking that references to wine in the scriptures uh, are really just references to old-fashioned Welch's grape juice. Well, that, that really won't work. That really won't fly in this context. Well-aged grape juice just doesn't sound nearly as appealing. But well-aged wine, as we know wine to be, is indeed very good. That's the picture here. It's largesse. It's luxury for God's people. And it's all made by him for us. And what does he say he'll do on this mountain besides feed us? He will swallow up on this mountain, verse 7, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is that covering cast over all peoples? What is that veil spread over all nations? Well, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. Indeed, if there's one great equalizer for all peoples and all nations that they are covered by, that they are veiled by, it is that every single person will die. As much as we try and downplay it, as much as we try and minimize it, as much as we try and even talk about it as though it's a beautiful part of the life cycle or some other stuff that isn't true, the fact is we all know the day is coming. We feel signs of it as we get older. We all are beholden to the entropy laws of the universe. We all feel the decay. This is the great covering cast over all peoples, the veil. And what is God gonna do about it? He's gonna swallow it up forever. In fact, he's already done that in the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? 
I mean, we, we got the, the first fruits of that. When Jesus rose from the dead, essentially he was swallowing up death for us right then. He was declaring to us right then that death is defeated. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, triumphantly, mockingly of death. Why? Because Christ has risen and Christ is our Savior. And since death will be no more, it says in verse 8, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. I can't help but think about, you know, just my position or my vocation as a dad here. I've done this very act many times with three boys. I've literally wiped away tears from their faces. It's an incredible picture of intimacy. That the God of God and Lord of Lords would be so intimately acquainted with us that whatever has caused us grief or pain, whatever has caused us sorrow, he will literally wipe that away from us. He will wipe away the tears from all our faces. If you follow me on Facebook, if you're friends with me on Facebook, then you may have seen yesterday a post in which I announced to the world that I am going to have to resign my call as the church planter in New York City to Epiphany Church. I've, over the last six plus months of lockdown, I've had to process this possibility, hoping that it wouldn't be true. But indeed, alas, it is true. And it has been a hard season. There's no doubt about it. I think 2020 has been hard for everybody, right? I mean, it's just been a challenging, challenging year. How much comfort is it to know that this is not it? This is not the end. One day, the tears that have been produced through the hardships and trials in our lives are going to be wiped away. And God is going to be the one who does it. But it's not just that. Also, the reproach of all of us will be taken away from all the earth. Folks, it's, it's not merely our pain that has been inflicted upon us, but it's also the pain that we have inflicted upon ourselves and others. The reproach, our sin. What does God do with it? Takes it away from all the earth. How does he do it? By taking it upon himself at the cross. Jesus Christ becomes our reproach on the cross so that we might be seen as righteous and stainless in his sight. And so verse 9 concludes our passage. Isaiah says this, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Indeed, we don't have to wait until the day that we arrive at that heavenly feast to, to say that. We can say that now as we go out into our Tuesday, as we go out into our various vocations, whatever they may be, whether we want to or not, we can, in the midst of the heat coming at us, in the midst of the storms bearing down on us, we can now say, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Because you already have been raised with Christ, Ephesians says. It is as if you are already seated with him in the heavenly places. You, Christian, have the victory even now. And you, Christian, have a feast awaiting you that you can't even begin to imagine. 
So let that fuel you going forward into your day. And may God richly bless you. Glad to be here with you today and looking forward to seeing you next week.